Sorry, I don't love you. A friend I've grown accustomed to. Cause with you, if something isn't wrong, something isn't wrong, something isn't right. I wish you could be happy. Hey everyone, welcome to Geek Dumb is back this week. We will be talking about 1984 by George Orwell with Trent Gill. But before we dive into that conversation, I just want to let you guys know that today's show is brought to you by LootCrate.com, and you can save 10% on any new subscription at TryLootCrate.com slash GeekdomPod. So that's the same as our Twitter handle and everything, so it should be fairly easy to remember, and I'll also be linking it in the show notes. And if you go to that link, you can enter the promo code BRIDGE10 and get 10% off a new subscription. And basically, you know, Loot Crate fits so well with this podcast because it's Welcome to Geekdom and Loot Crate gives you geeky items in each box. So really felt like a good fit here. But moving on to today's topic, 1984. Trent, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about you, Deanna? Pretty good. It's nice and toasty in my room already, even though, you know, it's only 74 degrees in California. I don't understand why my room gets so hot, but it does. And it makes, you know, podcasting nice and toasty for me. Yeah, I was telling some of my friends, I was actually in LA, I guess, a couple of weeks ago now. And I was right. surprised at how mild it was. Like I was expecting it to be like really hot just because, you know, of the reputation because I live in, in Canada and it's cold, cold. <laughs> up here in the winter. So, um, but yeah, it was actually quite nice. Like it wasn't too hot, but I imagine as the summer goes on, it gets warmer and stuff. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. It makes me not really look forward to podcasting in the summer considering, you know, it's only April here and I'm starting to warm up when I do this already. You know, I've already switched from the over ear headphones to my little earbuds because if I just put something over my ears, it would just be like soaked in sweat and no one wants that. I don't want that. And I'm sure you guys didn't want to hear about that, but you did. So there it is. <laughs> All righty. Should we move on to the novel here? Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and give us a quick breakdown of what the novel is about? Because I know you've read this a little more recently than I have. I think you said you went back and sort of either skimmed through it or reread it before doing this podcast. And I read it not too terribly long ago. It wasn't high school or anything. It was either like tail end of college or after college, something like that, that I sat down and finally got through it after it had been on my shelf for a while. But what is this about, essentially? Right. So uh, 1984 is George Orwell's kind of classic dystopian novel. And um, by dystopian, it basically means that uh, it's kind of a differently organized society that is almost like a nightmarish scenario. Um, in this case, it's a, a totalitarian society. And since the novel was published after World War II, it reflects a lot of the history that was going on at the time and almost the fears that were around how the world was divided and um, the uh, both fascist and communist uh, state-controlled societies that were uh, emerging at the time. And basically, it's this society where uh, citizens are oppressed and under state surveillance and control and there's an authoritarian government and no one is quite sure whether the uh, dictator at the head of it actually exists, who's Big Brother. And um, so in 1984, the people are basically governed and monitored through uh, 
political institutions that have absolute power. And some of the themes that people have noticed and are quite associated with the book, just whenever somebody mentions 1984, they think of, you know, censorship, authoritarianism, injustice, corruption, conformity, social control, oppression, um, surveillance, these kinds of things. So that's kind of the structure of the book. Uh, And the main character, Winston Smith, is a member of the Outer Party, which is sort of like the bureaucrats who work in the uh, government of the uh, the state that he lives in. And it kind of, the book just basically follows Winston's kind of awakening and his realization that there's something wrong with the society he lives in. And he essentially has an affair with um, another member of the outer party, Julia, and they are trying to join um, kind of an underground society that may or may not exist and is supposed to be like a resistance to Big Brother. And basically the novel is about that process and whether or not we're going to actually go into spoiling the novel. I mean, I assume most people have read it if you're listening to this, but <laughs> yeah, we can um, definitely go you know, into spoilers. Okay. Um, so anything to add there? Or? Yeah. And, you know, I think this book is really where we got the term, you know, big brothers watching you. And I'm sure most people who are listening to this and who have read this book know that term simply because when this book came out, you know, it was meant to be a futuristic look too because it came out well before 1984 yet it takes place in the future at the time even though now it's you know pretty well in the past so i think what orwell accomplished with this book was just pretty outstanding and while you know not all of this sort of technology and stuff was necessarily around in the 80s by the time we hit the 80s, you could definitely see these advancements happening and sort of what the government was going through in general. And it might be, you know, pretty relevant today still. And I think that's simply because of how advanced he went with it. Because when we're reading things like sci-fi books and that sort of thing, those can get pretty futuristic and also feel unrealistic at the same time. But I think with this, he sets the expectation that, you know, this is a potential reality in the future. And, you know, it's not like he's having flying saucers going around or anything crazy like that. So it's very grounded in the idea of this oppression and everything like that. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I'll add to that is like, even though it very much is speculative and sort of grounded in the reality of the time, it's people tend to forget, but it's very much rooted in its historical moment. I mean, I don't know how pretentious that sounds, but, you know, Orwell's writing basically starts the novel at the during slash the tail end of World War II. And this is like one of the most apocalyptic wars in world history. So you have Nazi Germany being defeated by the Allied forces, and the world is essentially divided between um, these emerging states. And even though the Soviet Union is allied with uh, Great Britain and the United States, there's a lot of tension between them 
as well. And um, obviously, the Bolshevik Revolution has taken place in Soviet Union, and the U.S. and Great Britain are still very much capitalist states. And so I think there's a lot of cynicism and um, fear and all these sorts of negative – it's very much a, 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 a dark period of human history, and it's a very bleak novel because of that. And I think Orwell is really trying to channel um, how how bleak the historical moment really feels um, when he's writing the novel, um, even though he's setting it in 1984. I, I think I very much think that it he speculates it's going to be this this bad because of how bad things are 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 already. So right and. I think, you know, with the whole idea of Big Brother is watching you, this sort of really goes in depth on the security measures taken. And I don't even know if you could really call them security measures, considering how much they invade everyone's privacy. And like I said, I haven't read this in a little while, but it was somewhat recently. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But if I'm remembering this correctly, all of the citizens sort of have to tune in at a specific time for like the daily announcements. Yeah, the uh, the I think it's called a three minute hate or the one minute hate or something like that. Right. And it's like a yeah, it's it's an announcement where they denounce whatever uh, whatever nation that they're at war with at the time. So um, there are three major states um, which Winston lives in is Oceania, and then there's Eurasia, which is. Um, basically all of Europe other than Great Britain and includes Russia. And then there's East Asia, which is, um, you know, what we know now as the Eastern part of Asia and their Oceania is perpetually at war with either Eurasia or East Asia. And the, um, every day they have like this sort of jingoistic moment where they spew hate about whatever, nation they're at war with at the time so that's probably what you're remembering and yeah the uh uh there's also the telescreen so in each person's home and throughout the public spaces there are these screens that essentially monitor and listen in on the conversations that are happening and i think they also have I'm not sure if they just have microphones but they also have cameras to detect any sort of wrongdoing you know, by the citizens, and only the members of the inner party can turn off the telescreens. I think that plays a big part into the idea of always being watched, because even if you aren't at home, like you said, they're in these public spaces, so they can watch you every minute of every day, pretty much. And obviously, when you have things in the present day, like security cameras, street cameras and that sort of thing. You can do something similar, but, you know, more often than not, those are there for different purposes other than, you know, spying on everyone every minute of every day. So we aren't quite at this level yet of, you know, being watched and everything, but it really puts it into perspective how much power a government could have if they really wanted to. And we've seen this throughout history. And I'm not a big history person by any means, unless it's like music history or film history or something entertainment related. 
But, you know, we've seen these dictatorships before and how people don't have the same freedoms everywhere. And I think this novel puts a lot of things into perspective. And I think it still sort of goes to show how lucky we are here in America. And I'm sure it's the same with you in Canada. You can sort of go about your day and not feel like you're being watched every minute. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I was going to mention that um, about how it puts things in, into perspective, because when, you know, with its re- resurgence recently as kind of a, you know, it's sold out of Amazon, you know, around the time when the most recent election happened. And I think people are quick to jump to comparisons like, oh, look at how much our societies are starting to resemble 1984. And I don't think that's the right way to approach it. I think that right. your perspective of, you know, not necessarily how, I mean, how lucky we are is one way to put it. But what I would say is that um, if we're able to openly discuss, read, and write works like 1984, then our society is nowhere near close to as oppressive and um, censorship-driven as the society of 1984 is. Because if you think about um, Winston's job, uh, he works in the uh, Ministry of Truth, which is responsible for, um, he's basically in the records department, and his job is to essentially censor and erase history that goes against the uh, party's wishes. Um, So basically, any record of historical truth that isn't approved by the party is expunged from the history books. History books are constantly rewritten and republished, and um, it's very much like a an extreme version of state-controlled media in right. that society. So I think we shouldn't be too quick to compare our, our own society to 1984. Um, that said, I do think that some of the revelations about the NSA and, and Edward Snowden and what he revealed – um, do point to uh, more surveillance um, as sort of a justified by this kind of idea that we need to um, stay, sorry, how do, how do I put this? Um, be vigilant. And in order to be vigilant, we have, being safe requires constant vigilance, you know, this kind right. of idea that we have to keep tabs on everyone. I do think there are comparisons there. And, you know, I, I do think that um, there are certain con- certainly constitutional rights that are violated. And that's something that Orwell feared because coming off of World War II, where you had multiple societies under martial law, you had the draft, you had, you know, um, you had sort of sp- and even even during the Cold War, where sort of intelligence was a major part of it, you have a lot of that, um, you know, invasions of people's lives. And I think Orwell definitely feared that and what direction that could go. And I, the one thing that he sort of, I don't know if predicted is quite the word, but definitely he sensed that technology was going to help that. And I think we can definitely say now that technology is at a point where you don't even necessarily... Um, need people's approval to invade their privacy. You know, they're just right. willing to make everything public anyway. You know, we just had uh, a, a murder broadcast live on Facebook uh, the other day. So, <laughs> you know, this is something that's it, it's interesting to think of in the perspective of 1984. Yeah, and in some ways, you know, 
technology can obviously get out of hand, like you just mentioned with the murder posted live to Facebook. And it's different than what he's portraying in 1984, because in 1984, it's the government that is using it to their advantage. And they're the ones that are sort of inappropriately using it as far as, you know, our standards today of how we can use technology and, you know, sort of what's right and what's wrong for the government to do. And I think with the way technology is today, it's like, we personally have the option to make everything public or not. You know, like Facebook has the option to have everyone be able to see your profile, see your pictures and everything like that. Or you can make it private to where it's only your friends or, you know, like your friends and then their friends can see it and that sort of thing. So there's different privacy levels with our technology, whereas this in 1984, the public doesn't have that option. They're just being watched 24-7 and there's nothing they can do about it. And, you know, it sort of puts them in a state of fear to do anything. And it's not even that necessarily what they would be doing is illegal or anything like that. It's sort of just maybe something the government would frown upon, like when you mention Winston and the affair. Obviously, yeah. that's not against the law, but it's also not really morally acceptable. <laughs> so it's yeah. just one of those things where it's a very fine line. And in 1984, the government obviously crosses that line. Yeah, exactly. And the thing that we're kind of going towards here is the idea of thought crime. And that is what is, um, of all the crimes that a citizen of Oceania can commit, like, one thing we should note is that in that society, there actually are no laws. That's something that Orwell makes very clear. Um, you know, laws are in some ways meant to protect citizens. You know, we can disagree on how much they do that and how much they you know, actually imprison people ineffectively. But in Oceania, there are no laws and the, the but there still are crimes. Right. So it's kind of one of those things where um, even though there are, aren't any laws, even the thought of even thoughts that are opposed to party doctrine um, are monitored. And so, you know, we have Winston's neighbor who is a um very nationalistic um celebrates the party and he's very much a conformist um his kids hear him talking in his sleep saying something against the party and he's um uh he, he's you know the thought police they're called they come to his house and they you know um make him go to work in a labor camp so he's reported by his daughter, you know, they overhear um, him talking in his sleep and he still believes in the party's values and, you know, the goodness of the party. But he still because of because he was talking in his sleep against the party and his daughter overheard him and she reported him, he therefore then had to go work in one of these labor camps. Um, so. You know, the the younger generation of 1984 very much gets uh, the brunt of Orwell's criticism as sort of brainwashed and, um, um, 
you know, basically doing the party's bidding. So I'm not sure how well that speaks to what Orwell thought of sort of the younger generations, but um, it, it's a very cynical book. You know, you don't really have many uh, characters you can root for, um, except, I guess I would say, Winston and to some degree, Julia. Uh, right. But even Julia, you know, Winston says that she's a rebel from the waist down. You know, she expresses her rebellious nature through her sexuality and it's kind of portrayed as almost an empty resistance because it's not really a about it's not really an opposition to the party's ideology it's not really an opposition to the party as this oppressive force or a totalitarian state it's more about the fact that they uh, the party prevents her from living sort of a selfish individualistic life. And we can debate about whether that's a noble goal or not. But I think that, you know, Orwell, Orwell wants something a little more, you know, more principled, I guess. And, you know, Winston kind of is meant to represent someone that believes in things beyond, um, beyond his own personal values and beyond, uh beyond what the party wants him to believe but ultimately he betrays his own heart and ultimately uh looks up to big brother after he's been imprisoned and tortured and he becomes uh he becomes very much a rank and file member of the party who admires big brother so it's a very cynical ending as, as well yeah definitely and i know we want to sort of talk a little bit more about its contemporary relevance and a few other things. But before we do that, I want to tell you listeners about Loot Crate a little more. So for all of you guys listening to Welcome to Geekdom, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription. It's trylootcrate.com slash geekdompod and the code is bridge10 for 10% off. And, you know, this box is full of pop culture stuff gamer gear and it's less than $20 a month and in that box you'll get 6 to 8 items that include licensed gear, you know, shirts, collectibles and unique items that they sort of do special for this box so you can have loot crate exclusives and everything like that and you have until the 19th of every month at 9 p.m. Pacific time to subscribe and get that month's crate so as soon as the 19th passes you know that month is over and you won't be able to get that box and you know by supporting loot crate you're also supporting this podcast so i've mentioned this in the previous podcast and i really do think that loot crate is a good fit for this and i know i mentioned that earlier already but it sort of just feels like it really goes hand in hand with this podcast, especially when, you know, we're talking about things like American Gods, 1984, Star Wars, and these things that are sort of becoming more and more relevant in pop culture. But on that note, I will remind you guys, Bridge 10 for the 10% off, trylootcrate.com slash geekdompod. And like I said, I'll link to that in the show notes so you don't have to memorize it or anything like that. Just be sure to use that link. And then enter Bridge 10 for that 10% savings. But now we are going to go back to the conversation. And Trent, like I said, we do want to talk a bit more about the contemporary relevance. And you mentioned 
Edward Snowden earlier and his leaks from the NSA that sort of gave us this feeling that, you know, Big Brother was watching a lot of us. Well, you're in Canada, so you're off the hook for that. (laughs) But it was just, you know, the idea that the government was doing something, one, without the public's approval, and two, that it probably shouldn't have really been doing in the first place. Yeah, very much so. Um, And I think in Canada, we, I I mean, I'm not really an expert on those leaks or what's going on, but I'm, uh, I've, I've heard, I've heard Snowden talk before and uh, about the connection between the NSA and, you know, Canada's version of it. So, um, I, I I guess we've kind of already covered this, but I, I think that there are certainly connections and, you know, we, whenever somebody talks about an Orwellian society, what they basically mean is that you're under constant surveillance and this idea that a big brother watching everyone um, really speaks to uh, the fear that people have that their individual freedom is um, an illusion basically. And I think that the, in 1984, those things are controlled through this form of monitor monitoring and it's taken to the next level. Um, and it's not just the actions or behaviors that are monitored. It's also the, the thoughts. So, um, dissent is, dissent is, um, automatically, there's no there there can be no dissent in a society like that there can be no open conversation you can have no thought that possibly violates you know the party line and so wh- i think that the revelations about the nsa really has to do with the um government's concern about uh domestic and international terrorism and i so i think i think it's 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 a slightly different thing um right. than what we really see at work in 1984 um but certainly I, I i'm willing to listen to more direct comparisons you know i'm not I'm not opposed to the idea so yeah and i hadn't read up too much on the nsa leaks or anything like that i know a lot of the documents were available but it was just something that was so overwhelming i sort of just know the gist of it and i think i definitely agree with you in that it's still different than what was going on in 1984 you know the government is not plugged in to our tv and spying on us 24 7 Unless, you know, they actually have a reason to be bugging someone or something like that. And even that at times can get a little iffy. But typically, at least here, I know that's supposed to sort of get a court approval before any of that happens. Whether or not that happens 100% of the time, I do not know. And I think with 1984, it's just, I wouldn't say it's becoming more of a reality now than it was perceived as back then just because we have better technology and everything and we're constantly plugged in. I think with 1984, the point of it truly was the government just showing how much power they had over their people. And, you know, as long as America is a democracy, I don't think we will ever truly see something exactly like this. 
I'm sure there are probably things that could be perceived as similar to this and could actually be similar to this, but I don't know if it will ever hit that level exactly. Yeah. And I would, I would also say that I'm not even sure whether, like, I don't think Orwell does, doesn't necessarily want us to think that, um, this is the future that we are building for ourselves. I think it's more of a, a warning than it is, uh, like sort of any sort of concrete speculation or prediction. Yeah. Um, so your point about democracy is something that I think Orwell himself was uh, very concerned about. He was, throughout his life, said that he wrote on behalf of what he called democratic socialism. But he was also very much opposed to the forms of socialism and communism as they had taken form in the Soviet Union. And I know that you said, you know, you kind of you're not you're not you're not as interested in, in history and i remember i was actually listening to um misaligned and you had talked about a similar thing um but i i keep coming back to this point and i want to sort of make it make it clear that orwell was very much writing about his particular historical moment and i think we kind of forget right. that context a little bit when we talk about this book you know yeah we see now that when Amazon sells out of it, we believe, okay, well, people are concerned that our society now has these parallels to 1984. But really, he's he's writing the book at the end of World War II. And this is just after fascism in Germany has been defeated. And, you know, a communist totalitarian state has very much taken hold in the Soviet Union, you know, regardless of how much um, uh, historical disagreement there is about uh, the Soviet Union and their role in the war and, you know, their treaties with the Nazis prior to the war right. and their subsequent um, sort of role as this global force of communism. I, It's really interesting to me that Orwell was a democratic socialist. I would actually call him more of a classic liberal um, okay. in the sense that he kind of believed in classic liberal values like freedom of speech, freedom of thought, you know, individual rationality, these kinds of things. He's very much a figure of um, liberal ideals, you know, uh, freedom, these kinds of sort of, I mean, I know these are kind of loosely defined, but this is kind of how we talk about these things now. So, and I I do think that there's definitely a parallel between Big Brother, you know, the the representation of him and the descriptions of Big Brother are very much this... uh, you know, uh, square jawed, um, thick black mustache that have parallels to Joseph Stalin. And Orwell had written more clear directly about, uh, about Soviet communism and the Bolshevik revolution in particular in animal farm, which is basically, um, a satirical allegory for communism that's set on this, you know, this, uh, farm, where the pigs basically seize control of the means of production and try and organize a society in this way. Um, But I think that 1984 sees, um, I guess, a form of organized government and totalitarianism that is perhaps what Orwell feared would happen um, once, once people's rights were um, taken away um, 
these rights that were already tenuous because of how chaotic the world had become, right? So the world was in chaos because of the outbreak of the war and they were under threat by, you know, by the, um, by the Axis powers. And it's very much a, a, a moment of chaos, I, I, I would argue. <clears throat> so I think there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's kind of a lot to talk about in terms of the history and like we can get into like the rabbit hole of that. But I think that's, that's really interesting. And I do think that the conversations about Orwell that interest me most are sort of what his politics really were and right. how do we reconcile you know, what he professed to believe versus what we see represented in 1984. And I do think that 1984 is very much his, you know, most political book. And it's, it's a complex book too, because even though, like I said, um, Orwell claimed to be a democratic socialist, the party in 1984, who is clearly sort of a satirical agent that Orwell certainly doesn't approve of is nicknamed Ingsoc. So, and that's short for English socialism. Right. So he has a complex relationship with political parties. And I think he has a distrust for, um, he has a distrust for a lot of the political parties that were emerging around that time. Yeah. And it's great that you brought up sort of Orwell's politics and everything like that, because what I was going to say next is that with Animal Farm and 1984 being his last two books, because he died the year after 1984 came out in 1950. And I think those two books sort of really show his opinion on politics and the government without really forcing it on you. He finds a way to incorporate it in a very interesting way. And in two totally different ways with each of the books. And, you know, I think he clearly went out on a high note for his writing career. And, you know, had he lived longer, who knows what else he could have come up with or if, you know, we would sort of see not necessarily an exact sequel to 1984, but his thoughts on latter-day politics and everything like that if you know, he had lived past, I believe he was only 46 or 47 when he died. So, you know, he still died fairly young. And it's just really interesting how he was able to incorporate his own sort of opinions and ideas about the government without feeling like he was beating you over the head with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think Orwell is, there's a reason why he's cited as this, as this classic uh, novelist and one that everyone should read um, because it really does speak to the anxieties and fears of what could happen when individual rights are um, individual rights and principles are taken for granted, I guess. Um, and I do think that is one of the main takeaways from that I got anyway, from the novel is that these are, uh, these are rights that we should not take for granted that they're very much um without them you know we have this nightmare society this dystopia where um i think one of the characters says if you want to imagine human history just imagine a boot stomping on a face of a person forever and ever and uh that sort of image really speaks to 
um, what Orwell feared. And I think it's really interesting to compare sort of his vision versus, you know, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And I, I'm not sure if you've read that or not, but it's more of um, uh, also a totalitarian system, but basically a consumeristic system where people are enslaved to their own sort of pursuit of pleasure and people are controlled by things like debt and desire. Um, so basically, Huxley sort of thought that you don't necessarily need to put in these um, um, aggressive institutions to police and monitor people. Right. You just have to give them so much freedom and so much choice and so much pursuit of uh, personal pleasure that they'll enslave themselves. So I was wondering what you, what you thought about, you know, how close our current world is to that vision versus Orwell's. Yeah, and I did read Brave New World. I just read that. I want to say it was maybe my sophomore year of high school. So it was a little bit longer ago than 1984. So it's not as fresh in my mind. But you did include this great little article on the four kinds of dystopia, which, you know, goes over Orwell and Huxley and some others. And I think, you know, what Huxley came up with in Brave New World, it was still bizarre at the time, especially when you're reading that in high school, you're sort of like this sort of feels like a joke. But there are things sort of happening now that make you wonder if maybe there will be things like limitation of access to speech platforms, which is under the Huxleyan dystopia there. And while I don't think, you know, the press is going to lose their rights that are literally in one of the amendments, you know, freedom of press and everything like that, I don't think that is something that's totally ever going to go away because as we mentioned earlier, with how advanced technology is and how plugged in people are all the time, you would probably literally have to get rid of the internet in order for that sort of freedom of press, freedom of speech to go away. And that would be something that is basically unthinkable at this point, because if you take away the internet from people, you know, you're going to ruin so many different industries and the economy in general because of how advanced things have become. And I think, you know, we're probably somewhere in between the two. Yeah, I, I've definitely read a few sort of think pieces about this. And um, I, I tend to see a little bit of both as well. And, you know, with the caveats that I've sort of described that, you know, nothing is as severe in our society as it is in 1984. Um, but what I will respond to uh, that discussion about Huxley and sort of his vision and whether or not what role the press plays, you know, I think very much in Orwell's world, it's it's a state-sponsored media, and we have forms of that in right. uh, this world already, in, you know, in societies that aren't in America. Although, you know, some people could say that there's plenty of state-sponsored media that's sort of competing with uh, more neutral forms of media. Um, yeah. I, I think what Huxley would kind of point out is, I mean, not to say that I know what he was thinking, but it seems to me that in Brave New World, the availability and excess of entertainment sort of served as a distraction to the important news 
that was going on at the time. So regardless of whether or not that information is being published, um, people just choose to read what they want to believe and they sort of live in these echo chambers that just confirm their existing beliefs or they just ignore ignore the news and politics and sort of issues altogether and just are, you know, just caught up in this uh, endless pursuit of entertainment and pleasure. And, and I think that, you know, there are problems with that vision, especially when there are sort of, you know, problems in the world or whatever. Um, but I, but I do think that you don't necessarily have to have overt censorship and you don't necessarily have to, you know, control media to, to sort of make, you don't have to necessarily control media in order for people to be controlled by what media they consume, I guess. It's more right. about it's more about what people are reading as opposed to what's available for them to read. And, you know, some contrarian pieces about the internet would point that out that, you know, you don't have to read these um, center or left publications if you're a right-wing voter. You can find a publication that confirms your views. Yeah. So... That that I mean that's getting into sort of very contemporary discussion, but I think that that's what that's what reading these um, classic novels is, is. It helps us do helps us think about the present in in new ways. I definitely agree with you too that people can choose the media they consume. If you don't like someone's opinion about something, you don't have to read them. And I think what people i i wouldn't say they necessarily don't understand about this but when you have people going online and sort of you know complaining about these things they don't like i think they don't necessarily realize that they're still giving these things attention and sort of bumping them up in the search engines and everything like that so these topics these people and you know these things they're complaining about they're benefiting from the complaining. And I don't remember where I necessarily heard this from or where I read it. But, you know, it's sort of like, if you don't like something, ignore it. And that'll hurt it more than talking about it in a negative way. So I think when it comes to things like that, or as we've seen with, you know, people who don't like Trump in a way, those people expressing their dislike for Trump, while they are more than welcome to do that, obviously, it's still sort of making him more popular in a sense, as far as search engines go, because search engines aren't going to, you know, distinguish negative from positive, they're just going to see, you know, Trump, and sort of focus on that. And I think when you have something like these dyst dystopias, it sort of maybe puts those things in a little bit better of a perspective for people in a sense yeah exactly and when we think about dystopias it's so um, interesting to kind of compare some of the more absurd things that are happening now with i guess what we think of as the absurd you know like when you when you read 1984 you know i, I still sort of have to suspend my disbelief a little bit with <laughs> how um you know, how severe things have become in that society. But when you think about our own contemporary moment and how, you know, we have this social media platform, which sort of functions as the president's 
you know, personal soapbox and the way in which it affects the world very directly. You know, you have North Korea and China uh, responding very explicitly to the president's tweets. Um, that's something that it seems stranger than fiction, you know. Um, and, you know, whether or not we have the right way to talk about it is kind of up to up to up to up to the media to kind of hash out what matters and what doesn't so um the other thing i was going to ask is have you ever seen uh terry gilliam's uh movie brazil i have not okay well if you like 1984 and the listeners as well um gilliam's brazil is it's not 1984 in film version but Terry Gilliam basically decided that he was going to try, well, he kind of joked that he was going to try and make a film version of 1984 without ever having read the book. <laughs> so I, I love that joke just because of how, you know, 1984 has this reputation. And I, I also say to people, you know, even if you haven't read it, just say that you have because, you know, people have this mutual understanding of, of what it is. Like, even if you haven't read 1984, you've probably heard of things like Big Brother, um, you know, newspeak, um, you know, thought crime, these sorts of things. And Gilliam's Brazil, I haven't watched the movie in quite a long time, but it is, it's very similar plot to what happens in 1984. And it's also just brilliant visually. So definitely recommend that for anyone who is interested in a film that tries to get at a lot of the same themes that 1984 gets at. Yeah, definitely. And I will find a link to that and add that to the show notes and everything. So I'll include all of these articles we've talked about here. I know it wasn't too many, but it's at least a few things to have people look at for further reading if they so choose. And I think, you know, despite being someone who isn't a big history buff or anything like that, you know, history was my worst subject in high school by far. And I think it's just because it's not that the stuff that happened wasn't important. It just kind of bored me in a sense because I was wanting to know more about, you know, current day things, I guess. If if that, you know, I've never been a big person to watch the morning news or anything like that. I sort of focus more on, as you probably know, like the entertainment side of the news and everything like that. So I I was really surprised that I enjoyed this book as much as I did. And I think because of when I read Brave New World, I probably didn't enjoy it as much. And I think most kids in high school who read Brave New World probably think it's a pretty weird book to start anyway, until they, you know, sort of revisit it again later, maybe. So I don't think I was alone in that. But if anyone has listened to this podcast for whatever reason and has not read 1984, definitely check that out. I don't think we gave away too terribly much. There's still a lot that happens in the book that we didn't quite get to. But Trent, thank you so much for coming on. And hopefully you enjoyed this enough to be willing to come back on again in the future. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It really incentivized me to go back and read the novel again. And I I was surprised by the content of the book. You know, it's one of those things where you think you know a book and then you go back to it and you sort of forget a lot of the details. Right. And that's one thing that I 
am constantly at war with myself with because there's so many things that I need to read, but at the same time, I don't know if I've even gotten everything I can out of all the books I've already read, you know, for, right. for example, you know, like, um, 1984, uh, one of my favorite books is, uh, David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. I know that sounds incredibly cliche, but <laughs> it's this thousand page novel and, you know, uh, there are so many authors that just have written so many good things and, you know, you can only read so much, but, I think that 1984 is definitely worth the time, especially just to be able to sort of have a perspective on, you know, how bad things could really get and, you know, what your values are. And yeah, I, th I think I think it's definitely worth people's time. Yeah, definitely. And maybe if I ever get around to finishing Infinite Jest, I got about 50 pages in and then just stopped. So maybe if I get around to finishing that, we can podcast on that. It'll probably be quite a while. But yeah, like I said, you are definitely welcome to come back on in the future. I'm sure there are plenty of things we can work out topic wise. But again, thank you so much. You bet. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.